0: Well, brethren, would you take your copy of the Word of the Lord and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 1. If you want to use the chair Bible, you can find this on page 909. We're looking this morning at the book of Acts and verses 1 to 5 of this opening chapter, which function as a prologue. And before we read God's Word, let us ask our Lord to come near to us And open our eyes to His truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come as a needy people. And Lord, we pray that You would speak to us because Your servants are listening. Lord, we ask that You would grant to us the grace that is needed to read and to inwardly digest the very words that You give to us. Father, increase our faith. Cause our understanding to grow. And may it all lead to Your glory, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's holy Word? Again, we are in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Hear now the Scripture. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. This is God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, this morning we begin a new series on the book of Acts, or the fuller title as it came to be called that that word, by the way, Acts, is never in the original text, but a title was attached to it sometime 2nd, 3rd century and ongoing, the Acts of the Apostles. And that's how it's framed here in the ESV. Now, in a sense, it's a fitting title because the book relates to us the feats, namely the proclamations and powerful deeds performed by the apostles. And yet, this title could also be misleading because while all of the apostles are mentioned, as well as a few other notable characters we'll meet along the way James, Jesus' brother, Joseph, called Barnabas, that son of encouragement, Stephen, and Philip, the book primarily chronicles the ministry of two apostles Peter in chapters 1 to 12, and Paul in chapters 13 to 28. Through the ministry, chiefly of these two men empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're going to see the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And that verse is really a structural thesis of how the whole thing is laid out. This book is about the spirit empowered growth of Christ's church. But that calls to mind another thing that may be a little misleading about the title, The Acts of the Apostles. Because the chief actor in this book is not the apostles. It's the reigning and risen King, the Lord Jesus Christ. From the throne, King Jesus has poured out His Holy Spirit in power, equipping the apostles as His representatives or witnesses, Keyword, and the apostles are conscious that they are the servants or the instruments of Christ. Thus, many have suggested that the book's title might more appropriately be The Acts of the Risen Christ, or a fuller version, which you would never use, The Acts of the Apostles of the Lord Jesus who empowered the apostles by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, nobody's ever going to use that. You see, only the power of Jesus Christ through the Spirit the power that Christ had promised the apostles in the upper room at the Last Supper, only by this divine power can explain to us how the apostles will go from fearful men hiding out with locked doors to boldly preaching the Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus. And as we'll see throughout the book, Christ is all the focus. He is the giver of the Spirit. He is the centerpiece of Preaching, and this book is full of preaching, about 30% of it is sermons. He, Christ, is the fulfillment of Scripture. He is the one who enables apostolic miracles. He is calling sinners and converting sinners. Indeed, as Jesus had said in John 14-16 to in that upper room discourse, the Spirit will bear witness about me. He will glorify me me. He will take what is mine and make it known to you. Therefore, all that unfolds in this book directs our attention to Jesus. Well, friends, let's begin to see Jesus' continued ministry as we start this book. And let's note three things along the way in these opening five verses. We begin with past and future work in verses 1 and 2. Past and future work. Now, we start with a unique feature of this book. Namely, it's a sequel. Sequels don't usually do very well at the box office. This one's pretty successful. It makes its way by the Spirit into Scripture. And you remember Luke began his book here saying, in my first book, or in the first book, O Theophilus. And that phrase immediately throws us back to the beginning of Luke's Gospel. A book which he addressed to the very same individual most excellent, Theophilus. And by linking the fresh work, Acts, to the previous work, the Gospel of Luke, Luke is indicating that his Gospel is not a stand-alone piece. Yes, of course, we can study Luke on its own, which we have done. But your study is not complete until you find the culmination of it in the book of Acts. Now, if we go back to the opening of Luke, Luke 1, verses 1-4, to 4, we hear the purpose of Luke's Gospel. I'll just reiterate that to you to remind you of the connection. In verses 3 and 4 of Luke chapter 1, Luke says, Though many have undertaken the task as eyewitnesses to write down all that Jesus has done, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, And why did I do it? That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The purpose of providing certainty, of giving assurance through relating gospel facts to Theophilus, well, that only now continues as we enter into the book of Acts. Luke wants this lover of God. That's what Theophilus means. It's a Gentile name with a title of rank. Most Excellent. That title will be used of governors later in the book, Felix and Festus, before whom Paul will appear. So this guy, Theophilus, is a prominent Gentile, a possibly recently converted man, and Luke wants him to be thoroughly assured of what he has been taught. So we might think of volumes 1 and 2 of Luke's work, Luke and Acts, or Luke and 2nd Luke. Think of it that way as a two-part discipleship study. Part 1, which is summarized here in verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Focus on that word, began. Because what does it imply? If the first book, the Gospel, conveyed what Jesus began to do and teach, then the second book covers what Jesus continues to do and teach. What, or better, who, must be the focus of discipleship? Upon whom must the believer set his eyes that he might grow in assurance, that he might be more thoroughly convinced of what he has been taught, that he might be convicted of the truths of Scripture? The believer must look to Jesus Christ. Isn't this how the author of Hebrews begins and goes on to tell us later in the book that we take our eyes and we throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that clings so closely, and we fix those eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. To be empowered to persevere, to understand our faith and continue in the faith, we must have a locked focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this memorably concerning the book of Acts. He writes, the starting point, the fundamental thing is that Christianity is about Jesus. I've written you already about Him, Luke is saying in effect. I'm going to now tell you more about Him. Christianity, beloved, is not simply a teaching. It's a person. It's about knowing Him. Yes, Luke is writing about historical events and happenings after the ascension of Christ, but he's clear to say Jesus is the theme. He was the theme of the Gospel, and He's going to be the theme in the book of Acts. And you need to know Him. You must see His powerful deeds that confirm the truthfulness of His Word. You must rest your soul on the facts of what He has done and what He is doing. And is this happening in our lives? so that we might grow in assurance? Are we becoming more certain of the things we have been taught because we are more acquainted with Jesus? We study His signs and His sayings. We see how He rules over all things for the church. But we're conscious that He's still ministering among us. That He's still advancing His church, which shall never be overcome. So while Luke is In a sense, looking back to past works, what Jesus did and taught until the day He was taken up, His ascension. The point here is He's given commands through His Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen that they now might carry on a ministry to advance the name of King Jesus. Now that last statement in verse 2 recalls the scene prior to the ascension where Jesus told His apostles to wait for the promise from the Father And that promise, of course, is the Holy Spirit. Luke is therefore indicating as we move into the future, the risen Christ will work through the Spirit to act in His apostles. These men are commissioned by Him. The word apostle means sent one. They're not self-appointed. They didn't send themselves. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? No, Jesus chose them and sent them. He therefore equipped them to continue to do the work of deed and doctrine, of doing and teaching. And as in the ministry of Jesus, the ministry that Jesus began to do, there's so much focus on the doings. Many people, when they read the Gospels, they get caught up with the miracles, signs, and wonders. But brethren, the doings The miracles of Jesus are simply seals, confirmations, and attestations of the truth that He speaks. The focus of Jesus' initial ministry wasn't the deeds. It was the Word. The deeds only authenticated the Word that He proclaimed, that He's the King of the Kingdom, and He's ushered in the last days, the days of the Kingdom to come. And the sign said, Listen to the Word. Isn't that what the Father said on the men of transfiguration when He spoke out of the cloud? This is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. That's what we must do. Well, as we enter into the book of Acts, we get caught up in a similar problem. People, as they read Acts, so often get caught up in the signs, the miraculous. But the signs that Jesus will do by the Spirit in the apostles only authenticate the ministry of the Word. The Word is central. That's why preaching is so prominent in this book. It's all about the Word, and what does that Word declare? Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is risen from the dead. You need to repent and believe in Jesus because there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. See King Jesus. And brethren, let our focus be riveted on Christ here. And we should note as we start Acts, the way Acts is going to end. Now, you don't usually tell people of the end at the beginning, but I think here it's important. This book is going to end with the Apostle Paul in Rome under house arrest proclaiming the kingdom. Now, more on that in a minute. But in a sense, that's really a strange way to end the book. We know Paul is on trial... He's under house arrest in Rome. And he's preaching. And then the book just stops. What happened to Paul? Where's the rest of the story? We're not told in this book. But what's the implication of that? The implication is this same Jesus who is continuing His work through His apostles by the Spirit is still doing that work as the Gospel continues to go forward. And the church is continuing to grow, to invade what we might call the ends of the earth. And in all of that growth, the Word is central as it proclaims the risen Christ. In other words, what is crucial for our discipleship, for our continued growth, is that King Jesus be proclaimed. Isn't this Paul's dying command to Timothy? I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by the appearance of His kingdom, preach the Word. Now friends, the book of Acts is not only about preaching. Again, 30% of the book is preaching, which is a lot. But it is a book about the Word of Christ under the blessing of the Spirit, confirmed by signs, causing growth. So how is it that we're going to grow? You think God's going to come up with some fancy new way? No, it's just the same way. Hear the Word proclaimed. Receive it and grow. But then secondly, see with me. Not only past and future work, but now further assurance and instruction. We know as we read the New Testament that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a first order doctrine. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ isn't risen bodily, our preaching is vain, our faith is vain, we're still in our sins, death will mean perishing for us with no hope, and we are, above all people, the most to be pitied because what we're doing is really silly. Again, the, resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is central. And that's going to be abundantly clear as we listen to the preaching, teaching, and conversations in this book the fact of Jesus' resurrection will be mentioned some 25 times specifically in the book of Acts. The centrality of this truth for Christianity and the reality that the apostles saw Jesus alive from the dead might make you and I forget, however, how difficult the doctrine or the idea of a bodily resurrection was for the apostles to accept. Now, we know that sometimes, folks, Look back on the ancients with scowling faces on those unsophisticated early people as though they're dumb because they have supernatural worldviews. And we're prone to think that they accepted supernatural things easily. Well, they did believe that there was an all-powerful God who supernaturally worked, which, by the way, is a credit to them over smug moderners who think there is no supernatural at all. At least the apostles had seen miraculous works and believed that there is a supernatural God at work. However, while they had seen many things, so many, John said at the conclusion of his gospel that the world couldn't contain the books if everything Jesus did was written down. But don't think that the resurrection was easy for them to accept. When the women came back and reported the news of the empty tomb and the angelic testimony, and they said, "Jesus is risen." That's the word we have for you. And they told the apostles what happened. Well, these words—I am quoting Luke twenty-four, eleven. These words seemed to them an idle tale, women's foolishness. That's what they're saying, and they didn't believe them. And then that disbelief is further seen on the Emmaus road with two additional disciples. They didn't believe the women either. And then still on Resurrection Sunday in the evening, Jesus appeared to the apostles minus Thomas and He rebuked them for their doubts. Why are doubts arising in your heart? In other words, Jesus is standing right in front of them and they still don't believe it. Jesus assures them that He is no ghost, that He is real flesh and bone. He invites them to touch Him. He asks for something to eat that He might demonstrate that He really is bodily alive. And then there's Thomas, who wasn't there that evening. But the rest of the guys tell him what had happened, how Jesus appeared, and initially he doesn't believe. He says he won't believe until he sees Jesus and he touches the nail-scarred hands. Well, in mercy, Jesus appears, invites Thomas to do that very thing. But then, after all these appearances, when Jesus is later in Galilee... Matthew reports the following. Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. Some doubted. More doubts. Thomas gets all the bad press as though he's the only doubter. They all doubted. Every single one of them. They are slow to accept the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that makes what Luke reports in verse 3 an amazing display of the kindness of Jesus. Look at verse 3. He, the risen Christ, presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days. Now, Luke in Volume 1 only recorded three of these appearances and they all were on Resurrection Day. The other Gospels, along with 1 Corinthians 15, if we put all the pieces together, indicate that Jesus appeared ten times prior to His ascension when they would have seen Him alive again during that period of 40 days. I won't articulate for you all those appearances, but ten times is... Significant. Now, we're not sure if all of those recorded appearances were the only appearances. I'm inclined to think that. But either way, it's clear that the Bible is really pressing the point of the appearances of Jesus. And it gives us collectively all the details about these appearances. Ten specific appearances before Ascension Day. That's quite a confirmation of a fact. In a Jewish law setting, how many witnesses do you need to confirm a matter? Do you remember? Two or three. And here we have well over 500 witnesses. And some of them, like Peter, saw Jesus alive from the dead six or seven times. That is a strong testimony to the truthfulness, the reality of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke presses this point by saying to Theophilus that Jesus presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs. The word translated many proofs is used by several Greek classical writers. Aristotle, for instance, uses this word and he defines it as a compelling sign. A sign that cannot be refuted but only here it will be compelling signs because it's in the plural. Quintilian, who's a Roman educator and rhetorician, a contemporary of Luke, he conveys the meaning of this word with even more force. He says the word translated many proofs means indications from which there's no getting away. Indications from which there's no getting away. In other words, what Luke is telling Theophilus and us Is that the apostles in particular were overwhelmingly shown the proof of Jesus' bodily resurrection? Jesus confronted their unbelief, and by his repeated appearances, he left no room for doubt. There was no getting away from the fact that he is truly risen from the dead. So, what Luke is telling us here is that the resurrection is beyond all dispute. It's a fact that you simply cannot dismiss. This is not a myth. It's not a ghost story. It's not the ravings of delusional women. It's not the hallucinations of a group of men who wanted something so badly to be true that they just made it up. No, Jesus lives. And Jesus, stooping to give repeated evidence, assures the apostles that He in fact lives. Now friends, I must confess, I'm I'm struck by this point in the text. Because I'm reminded in my own life how quickly I move to doubt, into fear, and to an unsettledness about certain spiritual principles, and how yet the Lord shows me again and again and again and again that He reigns for His glory and my good. And further, He's doing that to give me assurance. Does the Lord owe you more evidence? No! Why don't you believe what He told you the first time? But He keeps assuring His people. And if we scan redemptive history, we can see this. God stooping in kindness to give further assurance to Abraham. Lord, but how can I really know? And God makes a covenant with him. He showed him the stars, but then He gives him a covenant. Or with Moses. Three different signs about the power of God that he may know for sure that the Lord is God. Gideon, we got the whole fleece episode and whether the fleece was wet or the ground was wet, but it really doesn't stop there. In the next chapter, Gideon invades with another guy and hears the gossip of the Midianites. Oh, I had a dream last night and we're gonna, the, the Jews are going to come and destroy us. And he gets further assurance. And then there's Hezekiah who we'll hear about this later tonight, who sees a a shadow go back as a sign that God's power is in control. Brethren, the Lord does not have to prove Himself that He's powerful, that He provides, that He prevails over all creation, that He's nullified the power of death, but He keeps giving us proof. And dear friends, He's still assuring us that His Word is trustworthy, by giving us eyewitness testimony, but on top of that, also giving us covenant signs, object lessons, like baptism in the Lord's Supper, that they might serve as visual grace to teach us. Do you understand what this is telling you about your God? He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. He pities our weaknesses and frailty. And he draws near to settle our troubled hearts that we might be led to deeper assurance. And with these apostles, think about the significance of this reassurance. Look at their transformation from fleeing in fear, and somebody at the end of Mark's gospel is so scared he runs off naked. That's being afraid. Fleeing in fear, terrified that somehow they're gonna be overtaken, to then proclaiming Christ under the threat of death. And they don't care if they die because they're bold with the Gospel. These men are firmly convinced that Jesus is the Lord of life and they will not shrink back from shouting the truth in the face of suffering. In fact, their boldness, I hope, will be a theme that you see that overcomes the cowardice that we often possess. That we are scared to speak a word for King Jesus. And these men are ready to do it even if they're going to die. Luke himself He isn't an eyewitness, but he's also utterly convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. And I think Luke is a lesson to us. Yeah, he didn't see the risen Christ, but he heard from the eyewitnesses. And then look at what he's now doing. He's writing a book to convey the message that he heard to others, like Theophilus here. That's exactly what you and I must do. We're not eyewitnesses, but we've heard from the eyewitnesses. And what are we supposed to do with it? Sit on it? Never say anything? Oh, that's nice. No, we're to proclaim that Word. We're to go out with the Word. We're to see God transform everything by the power of His Word. We carry the truth of which we've been convinced and we proclaim it. We don't throw our brains away to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We receive the many convincing proofs. We put our trust in Christ and we tell others that Christ lives. And He's at work right now. Well, as Jesus is preaching to them and appearing over the course of these 40 days, truly demonstrating He's alive, He doesn't remain with them the whole time. Something here has changed. Jesus is going to be present with them, but He'll be soon only present by His Spirit. And He's preparing the apostles for that change. For the days when He doesn't walk among them, but when He has sent His Spirit to help them. However, did you notice prior to His ascension what Jesus was teaching? End verse 3, you see it. Jesus was speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, there have been various sects, even from the first century, that have claimed during this 40-day period, Jesus gave the apostles secret knowledge, esoteric stuff additional teachings that he didn't give before. He gave a different message than what's recorded in the canonical Gospels. That's Gnosticism, by the way. Luke squashes that ridiculous notion by saying the very kingdom of God that Jesus came into Galilee preaching all the way back in Luke 4 and preached for three years is the content of His preaching during those 40 days. It's not a new subject. Jesus keeps on instructing them in the kingdom of God. Specifically, as we saw in Luke 24, He's explaining how He is the long-awaited King of the Old Testament, and He's come to fulfill Scripture. He's ushered in the age to come. And while He has universal kingship, He has prominence as the Lord over all, His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It was typified by the kings in the Old Testament, but it's realized by Jesus, the Son of Man, to whom the Father has given authority and power. And Jesus' kingdom is manifested among those who are born again. Jesus said in John 3, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. But if you have a regenerated heart, if you have new eyes as Christ rules within you, you then give yourself to the commands of the King. Now, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is centered on the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Our Lord spoke about all of these things during His ministry. But did you remember that the apostles just didn't get it? Well, now Jesus reinforces the truth, having opened their minds to take it in, to receive everything He's teaching. And it will be their task in the days ahead to proclaim the kingdom. Paul will equate proclaiming the kingdom of God to preaching the whole counsel of God. Acts 20. Or to explaining how Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture and all must turn to Him in faith. Acts 28. And we're going to watch as the kingdom of God is proclaimed that souls are gathered into the church. And as we watch that unfold in the book of Acts, we should see the task of the church today is to do one simple thing. To proclaim The kingdom of God, to call sinners, to bow to King Jesus, to turn from sin and rest in Him, because that is the means through which God is saving His people. We'll finally see with me. Fulfillment. Wrapping up the prologue, Luke writes, and while staying with them, and if you're reading the ESV, you'll have a little note telling you there's a dispute about the meaning of this word. It may well mean while eating with them a further indication of the physical nature of the resurrection. Do remember the glorified state, brethren, is a state where we have real glorified bodies. You're not just floating on clouds and playing harps. You're going to eat stuff. It's going to be earthy in a good sense. So He was with them, perhaps eating with them. Verse 4, And He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The call to wait recalls the end of Luke's Gospel where Jesus told them this same thing. The Spirit will not be poured out until Jesus ascends to the right hand of God the Father. And upon His ascension, as Peter will teach in Acts chapter 2, verse 33, the risen Christ received the Holy Spirit of promise. And then Jesus will pour out the Spirit. Jesus had also explained in that upper room discourse in John 14 to 16 that when he comes into the fullness of his exaltation, he would send to the apostles the Helper, the Spirit of truth. You understand what Jesus is saying? You men cannot go forward without my power, resurrection power communicated by the risen Christ. You don't merit this blessing, the power of the Spirit. You can't prepare yourselves for this blessing. You simply have to wait for me to equip you. And it was visibly portrayed to them, if you remember, in a symbolic fashion. It's a weird text in John 12 when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It was symbolic there to communicate that just as God breathed life into Adam and He became a living spirit, so we must, be, we must have life breathed into us, and furthermore, we must be empowered to serve the Lord. Jesus is the equipping King. He sends the Spirit to enable us to do the work we've called to do, to proclaim Him who is Son of God with power. And as these men wait, they're waiting for the days of fulfillment of which John the baptizer had spoken John's baptism was a sign of forgiveness to the repentant sinner, but Christ's baptism by the Spirit will clothe the apostles in power. Now, this event, Jesus says, will take place not many days from now. For us, we'll see it in the very next chapter at Pentecost. And while Peter will quote Joel 2 as being fulfilled in the outpouring of the Spirit, the prophets contain many prophecies of what we might call the age of the Spirit. When Messiah brings renovation that starts with the heart and eventually we'll see it extends to the earth as the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, they'll all mention this day. It will be a time when hearts of stone are turned into hearts of flesh. It will be a time when men are given the spirit of supplication to look in repentance on Him whom they have pierced. It will be a time when the Word of God won't depart from the mouths of His people. So Jesus is saying, the days of fulfillment have arrived. These are the latter days. You saw this if you were paying attention when Parks read Scripture earlier. That that section of Zephaniah started with the phrase, in that day. That's all over the prophet's. This is the day of the Messianic age. Jesus is saying, it's here. Yes, I came preaching to you. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. But something is happening that's epochal insignificance. A, a new age as King Jesus is resurrected and ascended. He takes us into the dawn of the age to come a time when there would be widespread earth, end-of-the-earth reaching, outpouring of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, we have reached the day that the prophets were longing for. And brethren, I want you to understand, we're still living in that day. The New Testament will repeatedly affirm to us that Pentecost, which is about to happen, is a decisive, redemptive historical event. It takes us into a new era. And then Paul will tell the Corinthians, they are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. Or the author of Hebrews, Christ's appearance in His life, death, resurrection, ascension has come at the end of the ages. Are we in the last days? Yes. When did they start? Technically, at Pentecost. At Pentecost. These are the days of fulfillment. And Jesus wants His apostles to understand and recognize all of God's promises are coming to pass right now. What an exciting time to be alive. Once again, the Scripture is affirming to us that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And what does that mean for you and me? It means not one word of all of God's good words have failed. And from that, beloved, we should draw tremendous Assurance. Isn't that why this book is written? To assure you? Every promise of God is coming to pass in spite of us, without us meriting the favor of God, without us earning the favor of God, because we could never do that. God is bringing His great plan of new creation in Christ through the Spirit. It's all coming to pass, and we get to watch the unfolding of the faithfulness of God. Well, brethren, we're no longer waiting for this epochal change when the Messianic Age arrives. It's here. We are living in it. We are in the days of blessing knowing that this Word is fulfilled and we can be sure that one final Word for which we wait is going to come. And what is that Word? When King Jesus rides the heavens and comes and takes us all home. We live in the era of fulfillment where the Kingdom of God is here And that day will come and we will be raised in power. How do we know it's going to happen? Because no word of God fails. What an exciting book to begin and to recognize that you and me, we're connected to it. We're connected to it. We live in the days of blessing. Well, let us live like people who live in the days of blessing and proclaim the King that all may fear His name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this wonderful Passage of Scripture in this book that your servant Luke by the Spirit wrote. And Lord, we pray as we embark upon our study of it that you would use it to further assure us of our faith, the very things that we have been taught. Would you further prove to us the fact that King Jesus reigns, that he lives, and he will take his people home? Father, we ask that you would strengthen us in faith, and we also pray, Lord, that you would bring us to see the rule and reign of Jesus Christ over all for the good of His people. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.